Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm your host, Doug Stanton. Ed Young is a popular science journalist. You may have seen some of his writing on COVID-19, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. He's also the author of two books, I Contain Multitudes, and his latest, An Immense World, in which he explores the diverse sensory world of animals. Ed Young spoke at the City Opera House in Traverse City with Interlochen Public Radio's news director, Ed Ronco, who asked Ed Young what he thought he'd grow up to be when he was a kid. So it depends how young we're talking, because if you mean like when I was a kid, kid, like four, five, the answer was zookeeper, um, which is clearly not where I've ended up. I loved animals for as long as I can remember loving pretty much anything. Um, My mum recently discovered uh, a book that I had when I was eight, uh, and it was my favorite book, and it was a college-level animal encyclopedia that I in no way understood, but that had very beautiful images of the entire animal kingdom throughout, uh, and it captivated me and fascinated me. And a precocious little brat that I was, I also annotated uh, various parts of the book, made little notes, little informational notes, and wrote a foreword to it. Do do you remember any of those annotations or any good lines from the foreword? Um, Right, so, okay. The the foreword says things like, this book contains all the animals in the world. You can take this book with you to zoos, plural, and it will tell you all the animals that you will see. Happy reading. Perfect. Perfect in every way. Who was I writing that to? (laughs) I wasn't lending this book out. Was it like a you know, to like 40-year-old me, maybe. Did you ever take the book to the zoo? Uh, Yes, I did. (laughs) So how did you become a writer? How how did that happen? Um, Through a very sideways route. So um, like many people who graduated from uh, college with a science degree, I thought I was going to be a scientist, and I started in a PhD program in a lab that focused on molecular biology and very quickly realized that I was catastrophically bad at it. And I think many people, most most graduate students, think that they are the worst graduate students in the world. Uh, I objectively was, um, or at the very least in in the top 10 worst. Uh, I was a danger to myself and my lab mates and I hated every goddamn second of it. So while I was trying to work out what to do instead, um, I think I realized that I was much better at writing and talking about science than I was at actually doing it. And so did this very circuitous path that involved starting my own blog, trying to build up a very small freelance career, and then a medium-sized freelance career, and then a full-time, like, larger freelance career. And that led to um, being a staff writer at The Atlantic and writing two books. Let's talk about, um, you've already explained that you had an interest in animals from a very early age. When did you sort of refine that into, I'm going to write a whole book specifically about their senses? Okay, I can tell you exactly when that happened. It was, uh, I think, December of 2018, um, when I was sitting in a cafe in London with my wife, Liz, and I was going through this gratingly self-flagellating period of uh, thinking that my career had peaked, that I have no good ideas anymore, that I didn't know what I was going to write a second book about. And Liz, uh, as is her way, listened very patiently and then fixed all the problems by saying, why don't you write a book about how animals sense the world? This type of stuff happens a lot to us. <laughs> yes, so she has also, you know, she's, she was a marine biologist. She now works in science storytelling, and she has been interested in this intersection between animals and aesthetics for the longest time. So her, her graduate work, which she also didn't finish, was on the way uh, fish that live in coral reefs sense color. So we've been thinking about these issues. We talk about this at home. Like we, you know, we, we're both fascinated by it. And the minute she suggested it as an idea, I, I realized that it was the perfect topic for a book for a lot of different reasons. 
the science is fascinating, right? Like there's, there's, I could, I could write something where every page had something that would, a little factoid that would blow people's minds. But it was also philosophically fascinating. This idea of thinking about the conscious experience of another individual, or in this case, another species, is something that people have been thinking about for the longest time. It's a very difficult task. It's a very rewarding task if you attempt it. And that uh, the topic was inherently beautiful. So when I write nonfiction, you know, I try and do much more than just do a dry explainer of what is going on. I try and make the writing lyrical and captivating and poetic. And this topic lends itself to that very, very easily. So it, it contained, it, you know, it contained everything that I, I look for in the subject of a book. I knew that I was going to have a lot of fun delving into this for the next two years. I think we, we anthropomorphize animals a lot and try to, oh, oh, look, my dog is smiling, or that animal at the zoo is happy to see me, or angry, or something. And to some degree, I guess you can perceive an animal's intention. Um, but you use this beautiful word in the book. It's a new word I learned from the book, Umwelt, mm-hmm. which is German. And yep. it, it, if, correct me if I'm wrong, it is basically the, the idea of a, an animal's sphere of perception. Yes. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what exactly that concept is and why it's so important to everything that follows in the book? Yeah, um, so Umwelt is just a German for environment, but in this specific context and the way it was used by scientists, it means much more than just the physical environment. So my Umwelt is not the chair I'm sitting on, it's not the table over here, it's not the mic I'm holding in my hand. My umwelt is my sensory environment. It's the part of reality that I can perceive. Um, and inherent in life, the idea is that there is a part of reality that I cannot perceive. Right? So there are sights and sounds and smells and textures that my body gives me access to. And a lot of those things that I cannot detect, as well as things like the magnetic field of the earth or the electric fields given off by living things. But other creatures can. They have their own extraordinary sensory worlds that are different to mind, limited also in their own way. If we were joined on the stage by a dog, an elephant, a snake, a bat, a bee, they would all be in, exi- in the same physical space, but they will all have a radically different experience of that world. And that is what the Umwelt concept is. I, I think of it as one of the most beautiful and profound in all of biology because of two reasons. First, it's very humbling. You know, it tells us that despite the feeling that we're all sitting here, that the fact, despite this, this very powerful illusion that we are perceiving all there is to perceive, that is in fact an illusion, that we are only privy to a thin sliver of the fullness of reality. But I think that the, so the second reason it's profound, I think, is that it's incredibly expansive, right? For that exact same reason, it tells us that even in the most familiar of surroundings, there, is, there are new things to discover. There, is, um, there are wonders to behold. There are flickers of the magical in the mundane and the unfamiliar in the familiar. And that is a large chunk of why I wanted to write this book, not only because it reframes our understanding of animals as being more fascinating than we thought, but because it changes our experience of the world around us. Because knowing about what animals can sense changes how we think about what a flower is or what kind of information is present in the gardens or the streets or you know the bay around us, right? All of these things in our world that we know very well um, we realize actually we don't know them very well. Um, and that, that aspect of defamiliarization is something that I, I'm looking for in my writing. So you mentioned if, if these particular animals were on stage with us. Can you pick a couple of them and give us an example of how they might differently perceive <laughs> what's around? The, the elephant and the snake, or any two that you want to pick. Sure. Um, so this is the, the introductory exercise to the book. And, and, it, and I chose that because it's an... This whole area demands of you effortful feats of imagination. And so, so that's where we start. So if you had an elephant on the stage, 
it would be able to smell things that we cannot. Same if there was a dog sniffing around, say my dog, he's a corgi, he would be exploring the stage, picking up little trails of scent, he would know which people um, he was familiar with had been here before, or even if I walked on the stage, he would unspell my lingering scent in this chair. The elephant would also be able to hear low frequencies that we can't hear, and would be able to communicate with other elephants in the same way. If there was a bat on the stage, uh, it would do the opposite. It would be producing very high frequency calls that we can't hear. And by timing how those calls, uh, when those calls bounce back from the objects around it, it would be able to build up a map of this room, of you all, and navigate through that room even if we turned off all the lights. Even if it was pitch black, it would still be able to fly around. If there was a, a rattlesnake in the room, firstly, why? Um, but how did that happen? Um, but if we turned off the lights, the snake would also be very aware of our presence because rattlesnakes uh, and a few other kinds have um, pits on the front of their snouts that allow them to detect the body heat of um, their warm-blooded prey. Uh, they can sense the infrared radiation given off by that prey and effectively see in heat. If there was a songbird, pick any songbird. I saw a blue jay earlier. Imagine if there was a blue jay um, sitting on the stage with us. The jay, um, like all other birds, uh, has access to an entire dimension of colors that we can't see. So this already very colorful rug or these flowers would look completely different to it than to us, kaleidoscopic. It would also be able to sense ultraviolet, which is a color at the, uh, the far end of the rainbow that we can't detect. But a lot of these flowers would probably look very different to it because flowers have ultraviolet markings that are meant to attract pollinating insects that can also see ultraviolet. Humans are kind of weird in not being able to detect this color. Something like a sunflower, what color is a sunflower? It's just yellow. Actually, it's not. A sunflower is yellow and ultraviolet. It has a brought vivid ultraviolet bullseye in the middle to draw the attention of insects. The jay would be able to see that. Um, songbirds would also probably be able to detect the magnetic field of the Earth itself. This is now fall, it's migration time, so a lot of songbirds are coming into this area. Um, you'll probably see, those of you who bird new species that you've never seen before, those migrations over continental distances are guided in part by this magnetic sense, this ability to use an internal compass to find their way, even when other landmarks are invisible. So I could, I could go on, right? But the, the point is that there's so much that we're missing and there's so many different, there's basically as many different ways of experiencing the world as there are species in it. You, you mentioned that obviously there are visual things humans can't perceive, but you also say in the book that, and it surprised me that, that humans, have some of the best, and best might be too broad a word, but some of the best vision mm -hmm. among the animal kingdom. So yes, in, in some ways, in acuity in particular. Now, you're wearing glasses, I have like minus 7.5 and minus six contact lenses in, so we are not the best examples of <laughs> humanity's visual superiority. But in, in general, yes, humans have Amongst, uh, the best, uh, the sharpest vision in the animal kingdom, except for birds of prey, so hawks, eagles, and the like. We outclass almost all other animals in terms of acuity. And that means that our experience of nature is actually very different to what other animals will see. So uh, butterflies often have very intricate patternings on their wings, uh, spots and stripes. The butterflies cannot see those patterns. Uh, a bird might be able to, we certainly can. To them, it's all just gonna be a smudge. Zebras famously have black and white stripes, but to all of the predators that hunt zebras, like say lions, hyenas, those are just going to blur into each other at most distances. So to a lion, a zebra mostly looks like a donkey most of the time, which is one reason why those stripes are definitely not for camouflage, as they are often said to be. Do we know what the stripes are for? I mean, it's not the supermarket lane, so like, what, what is it that... that right, yeah. the, the best idea, uh, and I think a pretty convincing idea, is that the stripes are anti-fly um, adaptations. So for some reason, horseflies 
get befuddled by zebra stripes. If they try and land on a zebra, they just, they flub the landing, uh, they miss. And people have done amazing experiments to show this, including like putting a black and white zebra coat on a horse or like painting like large horse-like structures in zebra stripes. Uh, and they're very effective fly deterrents. So why aren't all horses black and white? It's because zebras, A, have a much thinner coat than other horses and also live in Africa where there is a much larger number of flies that spread diseases that are fatal to horses. So for all of those reasons, you have this one weird horse in this one part of the world that has just gone in this very random direction because uh, they're fly-proof. That's amazing. Um, before we go any further, I want to keep talking about animal vision for a second. But, but... Ooh, can I make a point about the, the vision question you Please. asked earlier? So Ed asked whether humans have excellent vision, right? And this is a really important point because while we have excellently sharp vision, our vision is terrible at night, right? It's why we struggle to see in the dark and it's why the dark looks black and white to us. That is not the case for a lot of other creatures. So in the book, I write about this bee that lives in Central America and it lives inside a stick which it has hollowed out and it emerges in the dead of night, in night so black that you would not be able to see your hand in front of your face. And it flies around foraging for food and then it comes back and finds the exact same stick and the exact same hole in the dead of night through vision. Now, I don't know if you've been to a rainforest, but there are a lot of sticks. <laughs> And somehow the bee can sense. Now, its vision is much less sharp than ours, and there's a reason for that. You can only have either very sharp vision or vision that's really good at night, and you cannot have both. If your eye has tons and tons of light-sensitive cells inside it, like think a lot of pixels on a screen, then it has very high-resolution vision. But now each of those receptors is just picking up a tiny fraction of the total amount of light coming into your eye. So you're now divvying up the total amount of light coming in by a lot of different sensors. So you've got a great high resolution display, but it really, really sucks when the light coming in gets low. And that's why you can either have high acuity or high sensitivity. Uh, this is a really important point because no animal is great at everything. So even just in vision, we have one, I've given you an example where your excellence in one domain costs you in another. And the same applies across the senses. So nothing is great at everything, nothing senses everything, and indeed nothing has to. And that's why, or partly why, the Umwelt concept even exists. We are all limited in our own ways. So it, it was amazing to me to think about how different animals see the way they need to see. Right. Um, and, and two examples in the book that I'd like you to talk about. You mentioned vultures mm -hmm. and why vultures and other birds uh, sometimes collide with these enormous wind turbines that should be just clear as day to mm -hmm. anything in, in its path. Um, and also you mentioned cows, which <laughs> right. is fascinating. Yeah. Okay, let's do vultures first. Yeah. So, I just told you that uh, the only animals that have better, sharper eyesight than humans do, um, not us, but you know, the average human, uh, are birds of prey, right? So hawks, eagles, and vultures among them. So vultures have incredible eyesight. They can spot carcasses while soaring up on high. Um, so how is it possible that a vulture could crash into an object as blatantly conspicuous as a wind turbine? To get the answer, you have to think about a vulture's field of view. So that's where it can see. So my field of view is everything around me in this kind of circle, right? So I stop seeing about here, about here, about here. Now, a vulture's field of view extends all the way to the sides, so it can spot other vultures soaring, so it knows where its pals are looking for carcasses. It's very good straight down, but it has a blind spot above its head that'll be lower than mine. So I, my vision cuts off here, it will probably cut off around here or so. And what that means is when it's soaring and looking down, it can't see what's in front of its own head, 
And why would it have ever needed to? In the entire evolutionary history of a vulture, there was never a case where there would be a giant object right in front of its head while it was soaring in the middle of the sky. So, right, like, on the one hand, it, looked, it seems completely absurd that this very sharp-eyed animal would crash into a wind turbine. But you only think that if you aren't considering its sensory world and what it can actually perceive. And with the cows, right, so... Well, real quick on the vulture. It, yeah. it, it, that's interesting. Is, is that also why we have bird strikes on airplanes, or is that just speed? Uh, probably a bit of both. Yeah. Um, probably a bit of both. Because bird strikes on airplanes have come from a large number of different species. Yeah. Um, uh, so, cows, yes. right? Your eyes have an area of best focus right in the middle, right? So, your vision is sharpest in the center of your field of view. But a lot of animals have focal areas that are very differently shaped. So for a cow, it's horizontal. A cow's best field of, uh, uh, the area of best vision is a streak running across the horizon. It's very good for plant-eating prey animals because so they can scan large strips of land for predators. But because of that, and because a cow has eyes more on the side of its head, it has more wraparound vision than ours, similar to a, a vulture, I guess. And that means that a cow that's grazing can sense someone approaching it from the side, a little bit from the back, certainly from the front. And that partly gives it that very somnolent air that we think of as being, uh, being dumb, right? Because we are animals with two forward-facing eyes, and we have come, and our biology forces us to explore our surroundings like this. So we have come to equate an active gaze with an active intelligence. But if you don't need to do this to look around, then you don't. Um, and so many animals that don't do this seem dumb to us, and that's unjustified. On the flip side, animals that do look around a lot immediately seem like spookily intelligent. Um, so in the book, I write about jumping spiders, which are tiny little things that will fit on my fingernail. Um, they have incredibly sharp eyes. Like a jumping spider can see the moon, um, even despite being a few millimeters across. And they absolutely will turn around, so turn and look at you. So if you wiggle your finger behind a jumping spider, it will, it will turn and it will gaze at you in this very eerily like primate-like way. So cows can't see above. So the, the, if you want to sneak up on a cow, you, like, like a parachute? A vulture, you just grab a vulture. You grab a vulture, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about animals that, that see in uh, different directions? Chameleons that have what seem like two differently moving cameras on their face. How do they perceive that? Yeah, uh, very good question, uh, and, and I don't know. And actually, the, so there's, let me give you the, the best example of, of this that I know of. Um, so there is an animal called the mantis shrimp, which uh, is not a mantis and not a shrimp, but um, it's, a relative, it's a relative of shrimps and crabs, uh, and it is notable for two things. One, for having the fastest punch in the animal kingdom. It has these two little, like, uh, claws uh, folded up praying mantis style under its head and it use, it strikes out with them to uh, kill crab to, uh, to break into shells um, it's an incredibly beautiful very very violent creature it also has the weirdest eyes in the animal kingdom um, it has two eyes that look a little bit like souffles and they're on stalks so they can move in opposite directions they uh, each eye has um, three separate areas that can focus on a point. So we have binocular vision, where we have two eyes that give us that that we we focus on different points in the in the world around us. A mantis shrimp has trinocular vision on each of its eyes. It also, so. Um, we have three kinds of color sensing cells in our eyes, and that gives us the all the colors that we know from red to violet across the rainbow. Mantis shrimps have somewhere between 12 and 16. And you might think then that they live in this incredible kaleidoscopic world of trillions of colors that we can't imagine, and in fact, they do not. 
if you put mantis shrimps to a test, they actually have much poorer color discrimination than basically anything that's been tested, including ourselves. Um, so things that will look like orange or yellow to us look the same to a mantis shrimp. So what does it need those 12 to 16 color sensing cells for? One idea is that it's about speed. So our eyes, those three kinds of cells, um, there is a ton of fancy neural uh, pathways that go from those to our brain. And that subtracts and adds the signals from those cells in complicated ways that give us all the colors we can sense, right? There's a ton of processing there. The idea with the mantis shrimp is that it doesn't do any of that. It just has 12, it basically divi divides the visual world up to kind of like, think of like a children's coloring book where the whole thing is divided into spaces that are numbered and each of them is, specific, is, a, is a different color. And all of that information is sped to the brain um, without any processing at all, which allows it to be very fast, which is why it has one of the fastest punches in nature. So the mantis shrimp thinks like, oh, cells one, five, six, and eight have gone off. That is blue, that's a mate. I'm gonna try and punch it. Um, or like, Numbers two, three, 12, and 10 have gone off. That is food, so I'm going to punch it. Um, <laughs> and nothing, nothing that, no animal has an eye that works like that. The closest we have to something that sees in that way is a satellite. Wow. You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlock and Public Radio. Coming up in the second half, more from science writer Ed Young. You're listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton, a founder of the year-long book festival held in the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Now back to Interlochen Public Radio's Ed Ronco talking with Ed Young. Let's talk about smell. And I want to start with dogs. Yes. And before I ask the specific question, you have one of the best named dogs a writer could possibly have. For those who don't know, his name is Typo. And do you spell it correctly, or is that part of the... No, we do spell it correctly. It would be too confusing otherwise. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's... Uh, so he's a corgi. He is small, uh, difficult to catch, often embarrassing. Um, when he's bad, he's typography. Typography! <laughs> that's the, you that's come the here name. right now! <laughs> that's great. Um, Dogs' nostrils have a very specific mm -hmm. shape, and there's a very specific reason for that. Yes. Okay, so imagine if a dog is sniffing along a surface, right? It's doing this. Every time it exhales, you might imagine that it would blow away all of the lovely scented molecules that are abound abundant on that surface. So it would sniff in, get information from the world, but then it would exhale and then blow all that stuff away and then have to repeat the process. But those of you who have, who have dogs may have noticed that the nostrils aren't just like ours. They have two side slits. The nostrils curve around the side in an apostrophe-like shape. Those slits are really important because when the dog exhales, they create swirling vortices of air that actually sweep up scented molecules into the nose. 
So a dog, regardless of whether it is inhaling or exhaling, is constantly getting this conveyor of smell into its nose. And it's one of many different hardware adaptations that, that explain why their sense of smell is so good and also why it's so important to them. You know, my sense of smell is very flickering. It's stroboscopic. If you've ever tried to smell like along a surface the way a dog does, and I have actually done this because I, it was because part, science. Because science, because of journalistic integrity. <laughs> It's really hard, like you lose the trail um, because every time you exhale, you void all of the scent from your nose, you blow away what's on the ground. Not, the, not so for a dog. I think that a dog's sense of smell is continuous, much like my visual understanding of the world is, like a, is, is a continuous movie rather than a set of individual frames. Elephants, yeah. the most famous nose in the animal kingdom, mm -hmm. perhaps. If you grow up watching cartoons, you think those are for spraying water. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But in fact, they are highly sensitive, really incredible sensory organs. Incredibly sensitive. Um, you know, elephants, uh, like dogs can do incredible things with their noses, right? Um, dogs can, dogs have been trained to sniff out electronics and drugs and rare animals. Um, elephants could do all that too. Uh, elephants can detect things that, like TNT, that is odorless to humans. But the most important thing that elephants do with their sense of smell is to smell each other. They live in a world where smell is incredibly social and it is tied to their incredible intelligence. And there's a great experiment that I wrote about in the book uh, that, that highlights this. So a woman named Lucy Bates was studying elephants in Kenya. She would follow a herd, wait for them to pass by, and wait for one elephant to pee. And then she would go up to, wait for the herd to leave, and then collect some of that pee-soaked soil in a Tupperware. And then she would drive around until she found either the same herd or a different herd, and then put the soil in front of those elephants and then drive off and see what happens. And what happens is this. If it is a completely different herd of elephants, they will find the soil, sniff it, and not care and go on their way. If it is the same group of elephants, the one who knows the individual who left that smell, they will be curious, they will explore. But if it is the same group of elephants and they know that the individual who left that pee is behind them, they will get super confused because their sense of smell allows them to not only know who else is in their herd, but also where they are. It gives them a spatial awareness of their herd as they move through the plains. And if they very well know that one of their pals is behind them, then how did that elephant teleport ahead and leave a bunch of pee on the ground? Makes no sense, it's very confused. And I think that gives you a sense of like, how important smell is to elephants, but also you know, how much of a part of their intelligence, how, part, how much of a part of their social lives it is in a way that it really isn't for us. And every time I hear stories like that about scientists and the things they have to do to, to <laughs> learn their way in science, I think, you know, go into science, it's super glamorous, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Get a Nobel Prize. Or maybe drive around the savannah with a Tupperware full of piss-soaked soil trying to find a herd of elephants in time. I mean, you know, there's either, either way is good. You do you. <laughs> uh, lastly, on, on smell, uh, I think snakes are really interesting, and I think we have to talk about them smelling. I hope I'm not oversimplifying this. Smelling with their tongues. Yep, no, that's exactly it. Uh, everyone thinks that tongues are organs of taste, and for us, they certainly are. For uh, snakes, tongues are organs of smell. And why is the tongue forked? It's because the snake can smell in stereo. So let's say you're a snake tracking a mouse. The snake crawls along, it flicks its tongue out on the ground. The two tips capture molecules of smell that the mouse may or may not have left behind and then draw in. The snake can then compare the amount of chemicals on both prongs of the fork. 
And so if there's more on the right than the left, it knows the mouse went that way and heads in that direction. If both uh, have the same amount, it goes straight ahead. If the left is more than the right, it curves left. It's a stereo smell detector. But snakes don't just flick the ground, they also flick the air. And that is basically like a sniff. It is the same as my dog raising his head and going <laughs> When a snake sticks its tongue out, it also flicks. It does this up and down very, very quickly. That conjures up two rotating vortices of air, kind of like two big donuts on either side of the snake, that suck air in from either direction, concentrating the faint traces of chemicals that are just wafting in the air onto the tips of the tongue, which it then analyzes when it draws the tongue in. So it's an incredible smell sensor. It just looks like a tongue. You've been curious about animals for a long time, but, but did writing this and getting this deep into the subject sort of resituate the way you saw animals and the way you thought about animals? Yeah, very much. Um, I, I wanted this book to spark curiosity and empathy for the natural world. I wanted people to spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about what their dogs are experiencing or even what the spider building a cobweb in the corner of their rooms are experiencing. I think there are important practical ways this matters. So for dogs, a lot of dog owners um, will yank their dogs along on a walk. And the assumption that a walk is for exercise or for travel. But what do dogs love to do on walks? They love to smell because smell is their primary sense. It's their main way of exploring their world and they need time to smell. Um, so I take my dog on sniff walks where he gets to set the pace, he gets to determine where we go, how fast we go, and he will often just spend like half an hour just sniffing his way around one block in our neighborhood. To pull him away from that, and sometimes we need to do that, but to do that all the time is a little bit like going for a hike and having your friend cover your eyes at every viewpoint and pull you along. It's not very fun, and dogs certainly become more optimistic, happier, less anxious if they are allowed to sniff to their heart's content. So I think knowing about this certainly helped me make my dog's life better. Um, it gives me a greater appreciation of the animals around me, even ones that I already liked and respected, like elephants. I think the most important part of the book, though, is that it does change the way you understand the world around you. And I can give you a few examples. So in the green spaces around us, so parks, gardens, whatever, there are lots of little insects called tree hoppers and leaf hoppers. And you may not have heard of them, you may not have seen them, but I guarantee you, if you've been anywhere green, you will have sat next to a leaf hopper or a tree hopper before. These insects vibrate their abdomens to send vibrations along the stems and leaves of the plants on which they sit that other leaf hoppers and tree hoppers can pick up on. These signals are not sounds as we traditionally know them. You could put your ear right up one, next to one of these insects and not hear a thing. But you can convert these vibrations into audible sounds with nothing more complicated than a clip-on microphone and an amplifier. And if you do that, what you hear are sounds completely unlike what you might think an insect would make. Not the simple chirp of a cricket, but something melodic, haunting, eerie, something that might sound more like birds or monkey hooting or um, musical instruments or even machinery. And the idea that all of the plants around us, the parks, the gardens, are full of these vibrational choruses that we have no access to is just magical to me. It just hints at so much unfamiliarity in places that we take for granted. And the same could be said about the um, flowers around us, right? I already said that flowers have sig signals and symbols in ultraviolet that we can't see. Now, if you take all the flowers in the world and you ask what kind of eye is best at seeing all the colors present on these blooms, what you get is something very much like a bee eye. It is an eye with, like ours, has three kinds of color sensing cells, but that are most sensitive to blue, green, and ultraviolet. It's a bee eye. And that eye is really, really good at telling the difference between the colors on all the flowers that exist. 
So you might think then that bees have evolved eyes that are really good at looking at flowers. A totally reasonable hypothesis that is completely wrong. The truth is that bees and their ancestors came first. Their eyes were already around before flowers evolved on the scene. And so flowers evolved colors that ideally tickle the eyes of bees. And that's magical to me because it contradicts this intuitive idea that the senses are just passive things, that I'm sitting here intaking light and sound and all the rest without having to do very much. In fact, the senses, simply by perceiving the world, change it. They alter it. They paint it. The eyes of bees, simply by existing, led to the colors of the flowers that we see. And so beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder. It arises because of that eye. And that, I think, is wonderful and profound and changes the way I think about a meadow. Mm. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the dog walk. Um, this book has changed some of, your, some of your own perceptions of things. Has it changed your behavior? Uh, the dog walk might be an example of that, but has it changed the way you move through the world? Uh, yeah, it, it has. Um, I started birding about four months ago when I moved from D.C. to California. And part of that was just trying to be more aware of my surroundings, trying to bring all of my senses to bear. Um, in the book, I write about the problem of sensory pollution. This is the last chapter. This is about how we fill the darkness with light and the quiet with noise. And we do so to the detriment of the animals around us. Light pollution distracts baby sea turtles from the ocean and pollinating insects from the plants they're meant to service. Noise pollution pushes away animals from places that they might otherwise thrive in. These forms of pollution don't seem like pollutants to us. They're not like plastic on a beach or chemicals from a smokestack, right? But they are pollution nonetheless. And to me, they are the pollution of disconnection. They not only harm the animals around us, but they sever our connection from nature. They make nature harder to appreciate. In noisy environments, it's really hard to understand how much life is around us. Um, I tried doing a little birding earlier and there's like a big main road nearby there's a main road running from here to like my hotel it's so loud there are planes flying overhead I couldn't hear a thing and that makes it feel like nature isn't there there's a reason why in the early pandemic a lot of people suddenly went are you hearing a lot of birds um, and there was this whole meme, nature is healing. It was this idea that like humans were inside, so birds were like, I'm, we're taking back the neighborhood. And in fact, that wasn't the case. It, it, the birds were always there. It's just that the normal din of human activity means that we don't hear them. Noise pollution not only makes it harder for us to hear what's there, but also contracts the area over which we can hear things by a significant degree. So our bubble, our sensory bubble shrinks. And I think that's a, that's a problem because if you go through your life like that, then nature and wilderness feel like very distant things. They feel like things that aren't part of your daily lived experience. And there's less impetus to savor it and protect it. Part of the reason I started birding when I moved to California is that birdsong is omnipresent in my neighborhood. Um, it's quieter. I can hear so much. I can now identify dozen or a few dozen species by ear. I can see and hear, like, I, I had this beautiful moment where I walked out of my door last week, um, a little bit earlier than I normally would do with my dog, and just stopped on my doorstep and thought, I wonder who's around. And I could identify, like, five different species of birds just by, like, the little flickers of sound that I could hear. And it made me feel so much more connected to my neighborhood and to the world around me. We lose a lot of that because of what we, of all the stimuli and all the information, all the signals that we have put out into the world. 
Um, so, yeah, the, the, to answer the question, the, thinking about the book and thinking about my senses, about the problem of sensory pollution, really opened up this new way of experiencing nature that as someone who has been fascinated by animals since I was a kid, wasn't really tapping into. Um, you and I are wearing masks because there's been a, a new wave of, of COVID infections going around. I know a lot of my friends have said, oh, it's my turn, and the picture of the test on social media and everything. You became well known for your reporting during the pandemic and uh, for its candor and its depth and helping people fully understand what was going on, especially at a time when there was just so much information floating around. Some of it misinformation, some of it just our, our wild reaching for whatever we could get in, about this new thing. In September, you wrote on uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, uh, oh boy, um, about stepping away from the Atlantic for six months because it had become a lot, all of that. And I want to read the quote. These past three years have been the most professionally meaningful of my life, but they've also deeply broken me. The pandemic isn't over, but after a long time spent staring into the sun, I need to blink. I did not spend as much time as you did thinking about COVID, but boy, did that hit home with me. I felt it. I think a lot of us really felt worn down by all of it. Have you found a way to... I don't know, process it, to think about it, um, have it in your life in a non-intrusive, <laughs> less intrusive way? Yeah. Um, the pandemic was hard for a lot of people. Um, the, the specific ways it was hard for me and my work were uh, varied and intense. Um, so the stakes were very high. Trying to make sense of what was happening in real time in a way to help people it was very challenging, especially when I was trying to make sense of it for myself. The amount of information uh, was vast. Uh, s trying to sift through all of it in real time was incredibly difficult, and actually, I think, only got more difficult over time. And I tried very hard to give voice to communities that were badly hit by the pandemic and continue to be in a cumulative way, including healthcare workers, people who suffer from long COVID, immunocompromised people, people who lost loved ones to COVID. Doing that, doing that work, bearing witness to suffering, is draining to a level that I had never experienced before. And I'm still not really quite uh, haven't quite processed. Um, you know, there would be entire uh, weeks where I would spend every working hour listening to dozens of people telling me about the worst days of their lives. And um, healthcare workers will often talk about how they would uh, you know, see the absolute worst of COVID during their day and then drive home past people who, you know, they would drive home, uh, pick up their groceries from a supermarket where no one was masking, drive past bars and restaurants that were full, and that disconnect between what they knew was actually going on and what we, the sort of reality we'd been pushed to accept was really hard. And it was hard for me, it continues to be hard. Um, and uh, for all of these reasons, um, covering this was immensely emotionally challenging. You know, I, I realized that I couldn't deal with it anymore. And you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on the person next to you. Right? So you can't deal with, you cannot report on things uh, this grievous and difficult if you yourself are a wreck. Um, so I stepped away and... Uh, and try to get better. Uh, let me just put a hopeful note on this and, and say that it seems like after this book, your previous, and, and the joy you bring to sharing what you see and perceive with all of us, expanding our umwelts a little bit, I guess. What's next? What happens now? Right, and, and let me sort of bridge from the, the down note that I ended on with that last question. The, the, um, on the one hand, it seems like covering COVID and writing about animal senses has nothing, these are two separate things that have nothing in common with each other. And I've come to realize that that's actually not true because most of my work, regardless of the topic, 
has been about trying to find some hidden aspect to the world around us that powerfully influences our lives and that is worth knowing about. Sometimes in a joyful way, like with the senses of animals, but most of my pandemic coverage was either saying, here are the deep vulnerabilities in our society that allowed a novel pathogen to kick our asses, or here are entire groups of people who are still suffering from this pandemic that we've been told is over and whose knives and needs we need to recognize and think about. It's always about the hidden that is the, the, the hidden stuff that we need to know. And the exploration of that is grounded in principles of curiosity and of empathy. So I want people to put themselves in the shoes of a dog or an elephant and think about how they sense the world. I also want people to put themselves in the shoes of someone who lost their dad to COVID or who is immunocompromised and still can't work, um, exist in the normal world that we have so rushed to get back to or who has long COVID and is still sick three years on from getting infected. I want people to think about lives that are very different from their own. And I think that we could all use a bit more of that. So this is a very roundabout way of answering the what's next question. Um, I actually sent out a proposal for book three um, to my publishers last week. And while I'm not gonna say exactly what it's about, I don't wanna jinx it, it does continue that those themes. You know, it's all, it's all part of this. It's all the same, um, the same values that animate my work. And I see book three as kind of concluding a trilogy that began with I contain multitudes and continued with an immense world. Ed Yong, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Ed Yong. That was Ed Ronco talking with Ed Young. Young's latest book is called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org. And listen to past programs at interlochenpublicradio.org. For Interlochen Public Radio, I'm Linnea Melcarrick.